Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to this week's Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. My name is Andrew Van Leeuwen and if there was ever a week to cling to my rich Dutch heritage, it is this week. What an amazing Formula One World Championship decider, not necessarily for all the right reasons, but we're going to unpack the good, the bad and the ugly from Abu Dhabi and joining me to do so from across the garage is a teammate that I would gladly hold up a seven-time world champion for, Stefan Bartholomeus. Stefan, as the old saying goes, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. Now, you're not Dutch, so um, are you claiming that Bartholomeus is a an Austrian name that translates to winged bull or something like that this week? I can't believe you're claiming it. You're like one of the biggest Max critics going around, and all of a sudden his <laughs> championship's your championship. What's going on? <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, you just take whatever wins uh, you get. I don't think I'm a Max. I'm not a Max critic. I'm a. I'm just critical of of anyone. I don't even know what I'm saying. I don't know what I am. I'm nothing. <laughs> I'm a. I'm a. I'm an impartial journalist, Stefan. That's uh, that's all I am. Um, well, look, I'll, I'll just quickly recap what did happen on on Sunday night or Monday morning, depending on on where you are, uh, where you were watching the race. Um, if you didn't catch it, it was. A fairly spicy decider to one of the greatest Formula One seasons of all time. Uh, Max Verstappen clinched his first world championship in controversial circumstances, to say the least. He was beaten off the line by Lewis Hamilton. Then, of course, they had a clash at the turn six and seven chicane on the first lap. Big lunge from Max. Lewis straightened the chicane and retained the lead. The FIA called play on. Red Bull was furious, as you would expect. Uh, from there, Lewis controlled the race, seemed to be doing everything he kind of needed to do to win his eighth title, uh, despite the best efforts and like some genuinely great efforts of uh, Sergio Perez to hold him up along the way. But a late safety car for a Nicholas Latifi crash really turned the race on its head. Uh, Max got a free pit stop that Lewis basically couldn't take, got some fresh tyres and then got a big free kick from race control. Uh, when uh, when they went off piste and let a handful of lap cars by to put Max on Lewis's tail. Single lap dash for the flag, and of course, Max uh, got through fairly easily, and uh, all hell broke loose. Uh, Mercedes lodged two protests that were rejected, uh, and as it stands, they're probably likely to uh, lodge another appeal. It was it was messy stuff, Stefan. And before we really get down to breaking, you know, get get stuck into the individual incidents, with the benefit of a couple of days to to sit on it, how are you feeling about it all? I guess the uh, the feeling at the moment really is is intrigue still, isn't it? I uh, certainly don't expect the the winner to change, but there'd be some level of fallout. You'd think it feels like the lines of sport and showbiz have been really blurred a little bit there, and um, how the FIA now reacts, where it goes next, 
is is what the intrigue is about. You know, I thought going into the weekend that the doomsday scenario would be a collision between the two that the FIA had to then make a call on that decided the outcome. But in the end, we kind of got the latter without the former. We got the FIA pressing a button, making a decision that really decided it, but uh, it was not quite the way we expected. Yeah, it's funny that, you know, we kind of almost got the collision on the first lap um, and then, you know, there's a bit of controversy around that, which we'll get to, but, you know, there was a few people uh, I can't remember if I saw it on my work chat or social media, but saying, you know, gee, something else better happen in this race because otherwise that's not a great way for it kind of not necessarily to be decided, but that's always going to leave a bit of a, a blot on the copybook for this race. And boy, did some other stuff happen uh, as the race kind of played out. As you touched on, interesting to see where the FIA goes with it, but I guess at the end of the day, you kind of, you know, this is very different to a team appealing another team. You're basically going to the FIA and saying, we think you're wrong and we want you to change your mind. You know, you're appealing to the rule makers to rule on them, to rule against themselves effectively. Um, so always going to be a huge uphill battle. Agree, we're unlikely to see an actual change in the result, but still fascinating to see what kind of fallout there is to not just the way the race finished, but, you know, I think we kind of, with the turn one, in, uh, sorry, the, the lap one incident, it really shone a light on on some things that have been let go a little bit too far and the lines have become way too blurred on. So anyway, let's um, let's crack into that sort of stuff. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. The lap one incident, uh, Stefan, what's your, what's your take on that? Is that the sort of situation where Lewis should have been required to give that position back, do you think? I was certainly surprised that he didn't have to give it back. I mean, firstly, I thought it was a great move by Max. Um, yes, he went in there, fairly late move and really, really hot and in there quite deep. But you have to be that committed to get a pass done in these cars, right? So, yeah, absolutely. like there was no yeah. space for Lewis, but that's kind of how it is. And as we said last week, like I'm, I'm confused by these rules and, and the way these corners are designed some of these chicanes and uh, the ability to just for the car being overtaken to decide to just cut two corners out of the track basically that's that's the nub of the problem for me um, some tracks have a little extra chicane you have to go through if you've missed the actual the proper chicane and some don't um, yeah they really need to to clean this up because um, what we all want is is these battles, these these moments of wheel to wheel action. And as soon as two cars get side by side through a corner, one of them seems to decide to uh, just create their own racetrack. Yeah, look, I, I, like I've been, as you pointed out before, I have been critical of Max's driving at other times this year, but I, I think he absolutely nailed that move. I mean, it was late, yes, but Lewis left the door way too far open. I really have no idea what he was kind of doing. Um, to be honest, from from Max's onboard, it was so clear that the move. Was on when you see Lewis's on board, he kind of just fires in there. But you know, you can't see Lewis's mirrors. He's got to see that coming, you know. And um, if you watch Max's on board, it's like, of course he tried to make that move. It was it was there. Um, there was plenty of room for him to slide down the inside. And the way he sort of held Lewis up on the exit, that was completely legal. You know, there's been times where he's tried to run someone wide. He didn't try and run him wide and, and drive off the track. He just tried to hold him up on the on where the track switches back, which is that's a great move. Um, you know, like uh, passing isn't always about there being room for both cars to drive side by side through the corner. Eventually someone has to concede. And in this case, it needed to be to be Lewis. And the fact that Max could keep it on the track means it was a completely legal move. But, and it's a big but, we, have, we had the Brazilian Grand Prix. You know, the FIA set both the let's let them race it out precedent and didn't penalise Max for making no real effort 
to make the corner and retaining the lead. So they couldn't really penalise it, you know. For as inconsistent as, as it's been, the, the stewarding, that would have been ridiculously inconsistent. And it's a shame because there's there's no doubt that, that Lewis, you know, gained too much advantage out of that. Um, so it's kind of – I feel like – Race control was painted into a corner to some extent because, you know, after what happened in Brazil, how do you then penalise a driver for doing – it was different, yes, but it was effectively making no effort to make the corner and then retaining the lead, you know? Is that is that fair enough, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there needs to be a penalty for going off the track and if they can't sort their – sporting rules out enough to uh, sort out when to give a penalty to a driver and when not to, then they need to actually design the track so that the penalty is inherent in the fact that you're in a gravel trap or slipping on some grass rather than just being able to cruise across a, a big car park worth of tarmac. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to the to the age-old argument of gravel. If there's gravel there, you just can't do it. You have to get out of it, you know. Lewis has to back out and go, well, there's nowhere I can go here. Um, and then Max takes the lead of the race. So it certainly is, yeah, modern circuit design leaves a lot to be desired in my opinion. Um, next on the menu is the uh, tussle between Lewis and Checo Perez midway through the race. Stefan, the thing that stuck out for me during that was, you know, it was hard racing and Checo Perez, heaps of experience, knew exactly what he was doing, knew exactly where he wanted to put the car. And then Lewis is on the radio complaining about it being dangerous. Like it really didn't look dangerous to me. It looked like two guys racing each other. And I was kind of laughing to myself thinking back to the contrast of, you know, Shane Van Gisbergen on the radio in Sydney when J-Dub was trying to drive him into the dust and he's sort of casually going, "Uh, guys, why is my teammate trying to run me off the road over the radio? And then you've got – you know, Lewis not even getting run off the road at all going, what's this guy doing? He's not like just jumping out of the way and letting me through. Have these F1 guys lost the art of racing a little bit? Like why does why does two drivers converging on the same bit of road seem so foreign to these blokes? I don't know. In this situation, I mean, when you're losing five seconds in one lap, that's some pretty extreme conduct. So while I think what Sergio was doing was – was fair and correct, and it was an awesome thing for a spectator to view and obviously a great thing for Max Verstappen behind to view as well. For Lewis, it would have felt like he'd lost 30 seconds yeah. in that uh, in that scenario when it's the teammate of your rival, you're trying to win the championship, all of that stuff we know. Uh, I did kind of enjoy how initially the messages to, to Sergio seemed a little bit coded, like switching from plan A to plan B, but then by the time the battle actually was was ready to happen, they were just blatantly saying, back him up. Yep. Like any pretense about the fact that this was some sort of subtle <laughs> coded uh, uh, strategy really went out the uh, ran out the door. Um, but, yeah, Sergio did a really good job and I think it's easy to forget um, with everything that happened afterwards to sort of overlook how important that ended up being um, because with the way these things work with um, VCS and uh, SC pit windows – um, Lewis losing that time appears to have but losing that time behind Sergio appears to have really impacted his options in that uh, second half of the race. Yeah, absolutely. But I just sort of feel like yeah, I don't know. There's not enough even fair racing 
the drivers seem to think it's it's unfair. You know, it just always leads. We've seen it with this Blaine game between Max and Lewis all season. You know, Silverstone being the prime example. You know, it's always got to be someone's fault, and it sort of seems like the idea there could be a racing incident at some point where two guys just end up on the same bit of road or going for the same bit of road, and both of them could have avoided the crash, but both of them didn't necessarily need to. It just seems so foreign, but we see it. You know, we watch supercars races for a living, and we see it all the time. It just sort of um. It just sort of happens and we don't, you know, it'd be nice to see more of that sort of racing in Formula One, really. That's what we want. And if if these new cars deliver, you know, on, on less aero and better racing, we are going to see more of it and they're going to have to get used to it. I feel like the fact that we get the team radios um, over the broadcast these days does colour that a bit. Like Lewis is... Obviously, the most famous for, for whinging about a lot of things from other driver conduct to the way the wind's blowing or, or whatever or a hat somebody in the crowd's wearing. But who knows? Like, Fangio could have been the biggest whinger in the car as well, but we oh, never yeah. got his radio. So yeah. Well, we don't even get a fair judge. representation of the radio from the current drivers, and that was a gripe that uh, Romain Grosjean always had was why, does the, why did the broadcast keep like, I'm, I'm not whinging any more than anyone else. You just keep showing my stuff, you know, because it kind of became a running gag. This bloke's always complaining about something. Um, so, and there is definitely that, you know, and maybe we see a little bit less of that in supercars, but I just think sometimes, and this is, I'm not even talking about Lewis uh, in general. It's just in general. There seems to be this kind of, this kind of lack of tolerance for any sort of actual like wheel to wheel racing when, you know, they're racing drivers. They should be out there loving it and getting stuck into it. Anyway, let's get to the big ticket item, the safety car and the finish. Uh, Stefan, I'm going to give you first crack at this. What's what's your take? Was it wrong decision, right decision? Should they finish behind the safety car? Should they have let those cars through like they did? What do you reckon? Well, I think that the intention of what the race director, Michael Massey, tried to do was, was right. Like vested interests aside, Everyone wants to see a green flag finish. So you've got to clear that mess up, the Latifi mess, as quick as possible and try to get the thing with a green flag finish because finishing that under safety car would have been such an anticlimax, regardless of who you were supporting or whose team you're on or whatever. And the intention of that safety car wave around rule is to get rid of cars that are going to be in the way of the battle. So... What they ended up doing where they waved some cars through, just the ones in between Lewis and Max, kind of did achieve what that rule intends to. But unfortunately, whenever you've got a shortcut a rule or apply only a bit of it, like they've done there, because the rule really is about letting all cars through, it certainly is an uncomfortable scenario and it leaves race control open to some pretty serious questions um yeah i think that um they definitely put put the showbiz ahead of actually going by the rules and and in general i feel like it's it's sort of the job of the teams to push the the very edge of the rules push the rules to the limit but that's probably not the fia's role so as much as as a viewer I love the spectacle of what resulted. I feel like it was the wrong call to to let those lap cars through. They could have restarted it in the order that they were. 
Yeah, look, I, I agree. I, I I just don't like it. And the more I sort of think about it, the more at the time I was sort of probably more indifferent to it than I am now, the more that I've sort of taken in and read about it and looked into it. You know, at some place you need at some point you need rules in place that teams can can work to. They need to be able to make their decisions, their strategic decisions based on some rules that aren't going to change. And we've seen a lot of inconsistency in many areas. And when you're talking about drivers crashing into each other and that sort of stuff, yes, there's always going to be, you know, it's never going to be 100% somebody's fault or whatever. So there's going to be grey areas there. But here, you know, as far as I can tell, you know, letting the cars through is within the rules, but there needed to be another lap after that before the safety car and the race would have timed out and Lewis would have won it behind the safety car. You know, Lewis is the champion. Or they don't reshuffle the order and they restart with a lap. So we get our last lap and Lewis probably wins the title because Max wasn't going to get past all those cars and then overtake Lewis. But instead the rules were adapted on the fly in a way that it handed the title to Max. You know, it, it it's it's like a football umpire, a referee deciding to give a team a penalty for something, for a new rule he's just made up, you know, in the dying minutes of a World Cup final. You're making the decision, you know. So regardless of who you wanted to win, that's not right, you know. It's not right to do something that just so overtly affects the result of the championship that's outside of the rules. It just doesn't feel like the best way to go about it. And arguing that there's scope for the race director to override the rules is dangerous as well. Uh, and Jonathan Noble wrote a brilliant analysis about all this on motorsport.com where, you know, he talks about Michael Massey playing God with the title and that's that's kind of what it feels like. And to me the really telling thing is the reaction outside the Mercedes and Red Bull camps because they're obviously going to have their vested interest and uh, I reckon Christian Horner reckons it was a great decision uh, and Toto Wolff doesn't think it was a very good decision decision at all. But they're really, you know, outside of those camps, forget about the vested interest. There hasn't been many people within the sport that have come out and supported how things played out. It's generally just confusion as to how rules can kind of be made up along the way. And I know there was an overwhelming sense from teams that, well, you know, Michael Massey said there was an overwhelming sense from teams that the race should finish under green conditions if possible. That's what we wanted to see. Stefan, that's what you wanted to see. But if that is the absolute priority, why not follow the lead from a week ago in Saudi Arabia, throw a red flag, get everyone on the same tyres, get rid of those lap cars, have a standing start and have a straight fight over a lap to decide it. Why not do that? Yeah, I mean, that would have been hugely controversial as well. And but it would have been fair. That, that feels like playing God just as much, if not more so. I think that it was just letting those lap cars, for me at least, through when, especially when initially there was um, a message to teams saying that was not going to happen yeah. and then how quickly that changed back. I think that hurt the optics of it a lot and the faith that race control were actually handling it properly. Yeah. But um, these ones are so easy to uh, to talk about in hindsight, aren't they? It's such a difficult role that, that Michael was uh, is in and a position that he was in at the time. Definitely. But to me, that just makes it all the more astonishing that you would go to such to the extent of actually by changing the rules on the fly. You know, surely you're just under that pressure. You just play the safe game. If that race finishes behind safety car, it is controversial. And Red Bull Racing would have kicked off a massive stink, no doubt about it. But at least you could sit back and go, well, it's just what the rules say. It's just how the rules are written, you know. What can we do? You know, the FIA would have come out of it looking much better because they say, well, look, yes, it wasn't ideal, but 
we can't change the rules on the fly. And people would understand that to some level. But instead going, well, we're going to change the rules on the fly, it just seems like such a massive step to take in such an important moment. You know, that's it's a different approach to dealing with a lot of pressure. I'll um I'll say that. It's it's hard to know the exact politics in the background, but I'd bet that if um if Massey wasn't at least seen to do everything he could to get that race with a green finish, there would have been a hell of a baking coming from F1 to the FIA, which we got to remember are separate entities about that. They've done so much to try to build the sport and there's so many casual viewers watching a finale like that. And I know you shouldn't be taking that into account um, when you are administering rules during a sporting contest, but, boy, I just reckon he was in a bad spot either way. And I tell you what, like from, from watching the broadcast, those the communications that get broadcast between the teams and race control, i.e. to Michael Massey, we were hearing Christian Horner and Toto Wolf um, lobbying Michael um, during the race over the radio. Like, surely that's got to oh, go, right? That just seemed ridiculous. It's unbelievable. It's like I, I every time, and obviously I, I think that, um, that, that Michael was actually open to broadcasting that this year. It's something that I think has happened in the past but has never been broadcast. It's just I can never believe it. I just sit there watching it going, what is happening? You know, we see so much protection of officials in every other sporting code around the world. And here they just go, yeah, right. If you want to give the if you want to give the chief referee an ear bashing, you can just press this button and lay into him. It's unbelievable. And like they they have to get they have to get rid of that. You know, in supercars there is an email system. You know, you can you can write an email to race control and make your point about something or dob someone in or whatever. But that's very different to be able to press a button and have an instantaneous live conversation with the race director about what's happening. And they're all as guilty of it as any of them, you know, like it's that they were in that when they they were sitting there, you know, lobbying and basically negotiating over whether those lap cars could get moved through, you know, like that's crazy. Early in the race we heard Toto Wolf saying, you know, Michael, please don't throw a full safety car here. I mean, that's, that's not his decision. He shouldn't have any influence on that. You know, and at that point, the race director needs to be able to focus on whether there should be a full safety car because that is the right thing to do, not should there be a full safety car or not because that's what Toto Wolf thinks we should be, we should be doing. So it's always hard with the timing of how TV actually broadcasts the messages to know, um, you know, when the message actually came through and how it uh, affected certain decisions and this sort of stuff. But the way it played on the broadcast. It flashed up on the screen, cars won't be able to overtake. The next thing, Horner's laying into it over the radio. And the next thing, cars are overtaking. And that just looks really bad. You know, that's that that's a that's a terrible look. And it's you, you know, you talked about, you know, anticlimactic finishes and stuff. I, I noticed a few people on social media saying basically that, you know, after watching that, that they're done with F1 because it doesn't, you know, it it, it that's not how these contests should be decided. Either, I mean, that would be a huge shame given how many new fans the category has reached through the Netflix series and through this absolutely epic title fight. Do you not think that, you know, the, the flip side of finishing under safety car or potentially as damaging is, you know, the sport to be seen to have no control over what's going on? It's, um, oh, it's, it's hard to sort of speak to what large section of sections of the public think, whether they be the hardcore fans or the 
casual viewers, but I, I do feel like the the sort of Netflix type um, new to F one punters aren't likely going to be turned off by that. I mean, what they would have wanted was the blockbuster finish, which is what they got. And if anything, the fact that there is a bit of intrigue about it sort of encourages them to go and follow up with consumption about what's going on online later on. Um, it, it probably does uh, risk alienating more of the hardcores that actually know the rules, understand the rules and can be a bit disenfranchised uh, when they're not followed. But yeah, it's sort of, this is a rolling soap opera of controversies. There's always something. And, and while in this day and age, uh, a few people get on Twitter and say, I'm never watching this again, I tend to suggest that those ones may just be watching again. <laughs> that's a very, that's a very good point. And you, uh, yeah, you're right on that one. I think one last point that's worth making is that, you know, the, the way this whole thing played out was actually hugely unfair on Max as well, because he's a brilliant driver and he, he's a deserving world champion. It's unlikely it'll be his last world championship, but it, this one's always going to kind of had that, have that asterisk, asterisk next to it. Um, just because of how it played out, and and basically how the whole race played out, because after turn after lap one, you know Lewis really did everything to win that championship, and Max actually had a pretty messy race up until sort of Sergio helped get him back in the game, and he kind of refocused and and got on with it a bit. You know, he went off a couple of times and all this sort of stuff. But yeah, the the guy is amazing, and he has the potential to be a great champion for the sport. And it's a bit of a shame that his first one sort of came in. In these controversial circumstances, um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, he he probably didn't have the fastest car there on the weekend, but he put in an amazing lap to get pole. Oh, incredible! And he yep. put two great moves on Lewis in the race, like the first lap one, absolute top shelf. Yeah, and yes, the last lap he had a massive grip advantage, so he, he should have got him. But still, I didn't think he was going to send it that early in the lap. And whether you've got a newer, softer tyre than the other bloke or not, you're still the commitment required to uh, stick it up the inside and break later than the other bloke. Um, yeah, it was was still high level driving. Yeah, and then uh, with the slipstream, even though Lewis didn't have the DRS, he was still a big big shot at, at getting back on him in the in the last uh, last lap. So, in terms of that, we shouldn't forget that there was actually some decent decent motor race motor racing going on oh that's true you just know there's no way max was letting him through when lewis sort of gets up next to him you just go <laughs> this is going to end in one of two ways and max is going to be the champion at the end of it either way uh, they're either not making the finish or lewis is crossing the finish uh, sorry max is crossing the finish line first i could never i just couldn't see there was a way he was going to let him he was going to let him go past but that's part of the brewings and excitement that max brings to the sport and um yeah, you know, still, I, I think whatever happened, however that ever, was ever going to play out, um, either driver was going to be a deserving champion just based on having come out on top of what was an absolutely fantastic year of um, competition and motor racing. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. Speaking of um, deserving champion, Stefan, um, you know, Oscar Piastri cruised to the F2 title on the weekend. He seems to be cruising towards Formula One. He's just going to have to spend a year um, thinking about it. Surely, Stefan, we can all agree that sitting on the couch for a year is the best way to prepare to make your Formula One debut. 
I assume when he's making those quips by couch, he means the multi-million dollar F1 simulator at uh, Alpine yeah. that he'll probably be sitting on a lot more than he will his couch. Yeah, you would think so. You would think so. It really is a shame that um, that you know the way the way the cards kind of fall and he doesn't get that automatic promotion, given the fact that he really looks like the real deal. And he does, right? Like he's a heck of a driver, that kid. Yeah, I mean, to to back over it, like to go three successive years and win three titles, Formula Renault, Euro Cup, Formula 3, Formula 2. I mean, we were just talking about Max. That was Max's first uh, championship in any uh, any formula. Yeah. And uh, Oscar's got three on the bounce. So, yeah, he's he's a bit stiff to miss out, isn't he? Um, we've seen another driver from F2, Guan Yu Zhou, uh, be promoted to F1. Um, and Oscar not, and there are obviously other factors involved there. But, yeah, I mean, there's no guarantees, no matter what you do in the junior ranks, that you're going to uh, get a seat. Hopefully this this year doesn't stall his his momentum this year coming up of not, not racing. It's, it's great, obviously, that he's got the Alpine reserve driver role. Um, and I don't expect him to slip into the background just because he's not actually racing something. One of the... One of the good things has been, I think, um, at least from here, is that um, there's a lot of PR has been done around him in Australia. He's had um, ex-Holden Motorsport PR man Gerald McDornan, who we both know, um, doing a lot of work for him down in Australia to make sure he's got a profile here because obviously he wasn't uh, wasn't part of the Australian motorsport scene racing here, getting known before he went to Europe. So, yeah, I still think we'll, we'll hear plenty from him next year when he's uh, testing F1 cars occasionally, and uh, hopefully he, he gets a seat for 23. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is, you know, I, I sort of thought after that F3 season where, you know, he was, um, you know, he won the championship, did a brilliant job, but he wasn't necessarily the just the outright fastest guy in, in that championship that year. Um, fast forward to Formula 2, he seems to have actually kind of brought that little bit of edge to his pace you know like just so many pole positions in a row so that's just just a sign that he's kind of becoming the real package and the sort of the exact driver that just works in formula one um if you watch him in some of those longer f2 races just very very good and um, we could potentially have a couple of aussies on the way to f1 Stefan, what do you reckon jack doing looked uh looked pretty comfortable uh making his sort of f2 cameo over the last couple of weekends he's now signed with Virtuosi for the 2022 season. What do you make of uh, Jack? Yeah, well, his his fortunes really turned around this year, didn't they? I mean, yep. he had a, a shocking 2020 F3 season there with HWA. I think he was 26th in points or something at the end of the year, and he, he moved to Trident for um, 21 and, yeah, contended for the title, finished second, and then stepped up really well to F2 in these last couple of rounds. So hopefully he can... Uh, Go on with it next year. It'll be great to have someone to, to follow and watch in F2 without uh, Piastri there. Supercast news and Sean Seema has resigned as the CEO of the category. He will continue in the role until the middle of next year. He'll be a board member for another year from now, so another six months after that, but he is uh, US bound. Uh, given his family moved to the States a couple of months back, I think it was, Stefan, has this uh, come as any sort of massive surprise? No, definitely not. And it's it's obviously, as you suggest, been uh, on the cards for a little while. And we shouldn't forget that these CEOs tend to have a relatively short shelf life yeah. anyway. They kind of come in with an agenda um, and then move on. I think he'll 
because he's staying on until the middle of 2022 and that'll put his tenure at four and a half years, which matches what his predecessor, James Warburton, ended up doing. Um, so it was inevitable he'd move on at some point and I think with new ownership, uh, they're probably going to want a new leader in there. And, and when you look at it, he's essentially done his job. I mean, the TV rights deal, the big sponsorship with Repco, sale of the business now and uh, Gen 3 well on the way. Um, clearly, he hasn't done all that himself and it's it's hard to know just how much credit to give him versus some of his key staff that have really been key in getting those deals over the line. But um, at the end of the day, it goes on the, the Sean Seamer scoreboard and he uh, moves on to something else. You worked for Sean uh, when you were at uh, Supercars on the, leading the digital team there. Uh, so you you know you've seen his work on the inside, you've seen it from the outside as a as you know in other roles. How would you sort of rate his time at the helm of Supercars? Well, there's definitely a chance that he'll be remembered as the bloke who sacked Larco, which I'm sure is not uh, <laughs> not how he wants to remember it. But it was a it was a pretty big one. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting when you look at that CEO position. I mean, the way that the business has been structured up until now, um, with the the teams owning a significant slice of it, it's it's such a tough role. The teams are essentially your boss or your bosses, but you've got to uh, you got to police them along the way. And it was sort of interesting to contrast. Um, Sean's style against against James Warburton, his predecessor, where Warburton was was quite a strong uh, upfront leader, certainly a great media performer, you know, good at empowering his staff and, and getting things done. But ultimately, he kind of came unstuck because he'd gotten the wrong people in, especially in Teamland, a few influential people offside there, and you could see that. Sean came in and, and really tried to please everyone, which is sort of a natural thing to do when you're new in the role and trying to get all the various stakeholders on side. But while that's good in theory, it can sort of also get people offside in the end as well. Like it feels like so long ago, but 2018 and 2019 in Sean's first two years, they were really dominated by those parody debates. Yeah. I'm sure. Uh, you remember well and mm-hmm. yeah i mean the the danger of trying to please people in that scenario is potentially if if you're sort of telling people what they want to hear but then eventually your organization has got to act one way one or way another or you yeah. can really like clearly penske got massively pissed off with the way that that was all handled and uh yeah keeping Keeping Ford and, and everybody uh, from jumping ship was uh, quite a challenge. And, yeah, it, it just felt like a huge step up from where Sean had been to, to handle some of those things. Um, and I, I do feel like trying to please everyone can sort of stymie progress on, on key things. Like we've seen Gen 3 delayed big time, mm-hmm. which um, clearly is not purely – Sean, but he's the head of the steering committee on that. Um, and I guess the, the public flashpoint has been the paddles, which is sort of the, the paddle shift, which has been a, sort of a little example of it that one very strong voice in the paddock wants paddles and many voices want to stick with a stick um, and sort of not committing either way and going down this, well, let's test the system on track 
middle ground, see see where we end up. It's just delay, 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 and you end up where we uh, where we've been. Well, I'll tell you what. If uh, if if things go the way they seem to kind of be going right now, and the paddles get the boot, and we stick with our mechanical stick shift, and that definitely seems like the way it's going to end up going. I'll just I will herald the Sean Seymour era as nothing but a success. Would well, be brilliant? It's like it's like winning the Bathurst One Thousand. You could go right at the end. It doesn't matter what happened before it. If you win that, great season. I'll say the same. Get it just. Bone the paddles, great. Did a fantastic job. Um, I'm uh, I'm interested in a little deeper from from you on that because like the the role of these CEOs in these big sporting organisations, like a key role of it is the the public facing stuff with how they handled the media, and uh, it's it's just been such a different era from the Warburton one. Um, where he really sort of led from the front and would go out and say things that he the supercars were working on or things he wanted to happen as sort of part of the mechanism of actually making things happen, where I feel like Sean's always been the other way, that he he shies away from publicly talking about anything until it's done. Um, and there were sort of months on end during his reign where the public didn't really hear from, from Sean much at all. Um, and just little ones like when when Holden had um, uh, been killed off by GM. I mean, there was you know statement from Supercars with a with a spokesman quoted rather than uh, actually Sean's name being on it. Like he sort of always didn't want to be in that in the difficult conversations. Do you think that's uh, that's a fair observation? I think so. I think it comes back to what you were saying about Sean. You know, wanting to be liked, and that's a. That's definitely been a big part of his game. The, the thing is with Sean that when you are dealing with him personally, you know, on a face-to-face um, yeah, basis, he's amazing. And, the, and you know, you talk about the fact that he didn't always want to overshare with the media. Sometimes it felt like in those roundtables that we had, you know, when we used to be able to go to races, we used to have the roundtables <laughs> and then there was a lot of phone ones, he would actually overshare. Um, and that led to issues sometimes as well where maybe the category wasn't quite ready to send things out, you know, or to put stuff out into the sphere. So he kind of would swing from one way to the other. I'm not sure if that's maybe a slight misunderstanding of exactly how to best tackle the media, but um, it sort of felt like it was all or nothing. You know, you would get nothing um, or you would get everything. But, you know, like as a person, if you bumped into him into the paddock, you know, he knew all the media. He'd stop and have a chat. He was interested in what you thought about about things, you know, which was always kind of nice. But, yeah, there was definitely, you know, as as evidenced by the press conference kind of meltdown in Bathurst the other week, um, it can turn fairly uh, it can turn fairly quickly as well. So it was definitely – it's definitely been an interesting ride from a media perspective in terms of trying to um, – trying to break news but you know basically if you sat down with him in a round table and someone said what about this you know i think was it uh, was it maybe that the the bathurst bid video were you do you remember that you know the bathurst yep. a few years ago where you know basically a video got sent out that you know that, that was used as a private pitch and he was like yeah you can all have it and we all got it and ran it and that caused problems because there was all sorts of footage that shouldn't have been sent out to media and all this sort of stuff, you know, just from a rights perspective, nothing for no other reason. But 
that was sort of an example of Sean just getting excited and going, yeah, you guys want to see it, you know? Yeah, sure, we missed out in the bid, but we had this great pitch. Have a look at this. We'll send it to you. Feel free to run it on your websites, you know, and that kind of caused uh, caused issues. So it was it was definitely it, – it, uh, it has been an interesting ride, that's for sure. Sticking with supercars, well, kind of sticking with supercars, uh, Zach Brown has offered Chas Mostert a drive of the ex-Alan Moffat Chevrolet Monza sports sedan that's in his collection as a reward for winning the Bathurst 1000. Chas, being the good bloke that he is, has since, nego- since negotiated for James Moffat and Lee Holdsworth to come along as well. Now, Stefan, this is going to sound like a huge tear-up, and I really – I really don't mean it to, and I mean this with the greatest respect to the Monza as a car, uh, absolutely no comment on, you know, the Moffats or anything like that. But, like, Zach Brown owns a Mika Hakkinen championship-winning McLaren Formula 1 car. He owns an Alan Jones Williams. Jeez, they'd be fun cars to drive as well, wouldn't they? What do you reckon? Would you throw Chaz in your ex-Mika Hakkinen McLaren? Like as much as we love the bloke, <laughs> um, just just thinking about it. Um, yeah, I, it's been a fun postscript to Bathurst, hasn't it? A bit of that uh, yeah. banter between those guys on uh, Twitter. And it was cool how it came about with obviously James Moffat being in the press conference at um, at Bathurst and when there was some discussion came up about what Zach might be able to do uh, for Chaz now that he's given him a Bathurst uh, win. James threw the Moffat uh, Monza forward and then it uh, it kind of developed from Twitter uh, from there. Um, yeah, I think if if Chaz is a bit stiff here, it's, it's more the fact that um, Zach has access to some uh, current spec vehicles Maybe not F1, but you'd certainly like to see uh, Chaz have a skid in a current Andretti Autosport uh, Indy car. That'd be uh, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I would just be I would I would just be saying to Zach, I'd be privately texting and going, "Hey, when when we drag that like the the Monza is going to be a great photo shoot, and it's going to be a whole bunch of fun to drive. But just stick it, just any Formula One car, just stick one in the trailer as well. Bring it out. I don't care which one." Just one of your F1 cars. I just want to have a bit of a fang. And they do tend to like uh, – they, they these sort of Zach Brown drive days do tend to turn into a bit of a free-for-all. Um, I think Dan Ricardo's had a blast in the in the, in the the Alan Jones car. Um, you'll remember a very late night in a hotel room in Manukau, Stefan, when we were, you know, digging on Carlos Sainz Jr. driving a – driving that Walkinshaw car and it turned out that Carlos Sainz Sr. had been driving it as well and we got a very entertaining mm-hmm. – uh, sort of a bunch of photos of those guys skidding around in that car. So they tend to have a bit of fun to them. So I'm sure Chazzy will get to drive some pretty cool, uh, some pretty cool stuff. Um, yeah, the thing with uh, the thing with Zach is that uh, then he'll uh, he'll turn up at the next bloody Winton test day for WAU, uh, wanting to have a skid in a current uh, yeah. current ZB. Yeah, that's brilliant. They should absolutely do it. That would be uh, that would be fantastic. That would be fantastic. Now for some news from stateside, uh, some sad news with the passing of four-time Indy 500 winner Al Unser Sr., a proper legend of world motorsport. In other IndyCar news, two-time Indy 500 winner Takuma Sato will join, now let me get this name right, Stefan, Dale Coyne Racing with Rick Ware Racing for the 2022 season. Stefan, this bloke's like almost 45 years old and he's still out there doing deals to, you know, be at the front end of this category do, do you think you can still bring something to the table at that age yeah he's had an amazing career when you think that he um started in formula one in 2002 
Um, and apart from one year when he was between the categories, he's been in right at the top level of open wheel racing, either F1 or IndyCar, ever since. That's uh, 20 years is a long time to be uh, peddling those sort of cars around. Um, and he's still competitive, like you say. I mean, he was 11th in the standings this year with uh, sprinkling of top 10 finishes and, of course, won the Indy 500 in, in 2020, which, to be fair, I mean, probably uh, extended his career by a couple of years. You know, the commercial power of that event is is huge. Um, and you look at those last two Indy winners, Sato at 43 and Helio Castro Nevis at 46. So, um, yeah, I think it's good that he's still uh, still having a go and uh, he's just part of that really interesting mix of drivers in IndyCar right now, some of the experienced guys and some young ones coming through. Absolutely. All right. Well, look, I think it's time for some Castro Stars of the Week. Who you got this week, Stephen? Well, we talked about him before, but I can't go past Oscar Piastri for how he uh, performed there on the weekend to clinch that title and, and the way he handles himself in and out of the car as well. It's uh, As we talked about before, it's a bit of a shame that he's not going to have an F1 seat, but he's, uh, he's handled all that really well. Yep, absolutely. Well, I'm going to keep things in-house this week. Um, you know, this is our last pot of the year and I'm sort of feeling the, uh, the, the Christmas cheer and Stefan, you've done a great job. Thank you for all your help this year, but the real MVP is AJ Hawkins, who uh, has been stitching all these podcasts together and um, sort of taking our bumbling nonsense as we deal with back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back whatever race weekends and um, and making it make some sort of sense. Thank you very much, AJ. It's been a busy end of the year and you've done a fantastic job and we, uh, we really appreciate it. Stefan, I reckon we can just about leave it there. For the uh, well, not the day for the for the whole year. What have you? Uh, what do you got planned for the off season? By the way, there's no off season in the uh, bookmaking game, uh, Andrew. Uh, some exciting things in the pipeline in uh, the V8 Sleuth book world that we uh, look forward to sharing more about uh, soon. Wow, you are going to get Aaron Noonan Star of the Week for that little teaser. I had to get one from somebody. I thought I was getting one here. Well, no dice, mate. You were close. You were in the top. Uh, you were in the top three of people. The I teammate might have. I wouldn't give star of the week to. Yeah, <laughs> two car team. I hope. Have you enjoyed the little teammate? Uh, little teammate jokes. It's uh, it's a very nice signature. I, I uh, look forward to them and uh, wince at the thought of them every week in equal parts. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, we'll be back to make a few more of them next year. Between now and then, I tell you what, it's going to be a dangerous time to be a uh, a car, a cold Carlton drive if you're in the Bustleton area in Western Australia. To all our listeners, have a very Merry Christmas. Uh, and if you're thinking about getting us a present, all we want under the tree are some nice reviews and subscribes wherever you listen to this podcast. We do have one little present for you listeners as well. Uh, this is a chat I did with soon-to-be supercars full-timer Thomas Randall. Uh, who will don the famous Castrol colours on his Tickford Mustang next season. And I do love a Castrol car, which you'll find out when this interview starts playing. So uh, enjoy and we'll see you in 2022. Tom Randall, thanks for joining me on the pod. Now, Castrol cars look cool. And that's not just a plug for our our joint sponsor, a sponsor we now share. It's a cold, hard fact. You must be pumped to be driving one next year. It's, it's an honour, really, Andrew. And... There's so many people that I've got to thank, not only for, for getting me into that position of being in a, in a full-time seat in the Supercars Championship, but to have Castrol on the car and supporting me in my first season as a full-time driver, uh, really not many people can say that. So Castrol have been a huge icon in Australian and global motorsport and, and still are today. 
And I remember as a kid, I guess, always seeing the Castrol cars and the Castrol colours, the green, the red and the white on the supercars and even on other cars around the world and to be able to be representing them in one is very special indeed. What's your favourite? What's your favourite Castrol livery? All of motorsport of, of all time. Oh, oh, look, you probably can't beat the Larry Perkins Commodore yeah. from the late 90s. They were great. Um, but I, I've got to – yeah, that that was pretty special. And that was when I think it was he shared it with Longhurst mm. um, many years ago. And uh, they qualified on the front row, I think, in – was it 98 at Bathurst? You're straying into Aaron Noonan territory here. That's not uh, that's, I could that, be. I could me. be. It's either 97 or 98, but – yeah, that, that, that's that's always a favourite. And then, to be honest, one of the more recent liveries I did enjoy on the Aston Martin at the 12-hour a couple Ooh, of years yes. ago when Jake Dennis, uh, Scott Dixon and Rick Kelly were driving it. So that was pretty special as well. And then, of course, our 2022 yes, livery. I, I, I have to – I'm a little I bit know, biased, I, but – I know you yeah. have to say that. I used to love the old um, – the like particularly the ST205 Group A Salikas in the World Rally Championship. They were just um, – they were amazing. Amazing-looking Castrol cars, that one. Let's let's chat about next year. What's a pass mark for yourself <laughs> next year, mate? What's your sort of base level of expectation of how you're going to go in your rookie season? Look, it, it is tough to sort of probably put a definitive mark on, on where – I think I should end up. I mean, I'd love to be in the top half of the championship come the the last or the end of the last round of the, of the championship in 2022. But in saying that, it is a very – I mean, it's one of the most competitive tin top categories in the world and I, I can't underestimate the competition in front of me. Uh, that being said, I do have some amazing teammates that I, I can really lean on throughout the year. And there's going to be, and there already is a fantastic database for me to sort of start as a good foundation and see what I can work on. And I, I just need to do the best job I can do, make sure that all my processes and procedures are in place going into each round that I do. And I want to make sure that I leave no stone unturned. So I think the potential is there to be in the top 10 at the end of the season. We'll just see how everything goes. But, I mean, the dream would be to try and get a few podiums, maybe even a win or two, as it is possible, as we've seen it in recent times, that rookies can can mm-hmm. win races. And in other categories around the world, you know, there's rookies that contest for, if not win the title. But, look, that's, yeah, that's probably uh, taking it maybe a bit too far. <laughs> but we'll just see what happens. I mean, I've got... Great tool uh, in Tickford Racing and obviously my supporters as well. And I think the Ford Mustang has proven to be a very good package. So I'm just looking forward to hitting the ground running and putting my best foot forward next year. It feels like this debut has been a long time coming. I'm sure it probably definitely feels like that for yourself as well. And it almost feels like it'll be unfair calling you a rookie next year, given how much experience you have in these cars, um, you know, uh, through Super 2 and through the wildcard program and Enduros and all that sort of stuff, do you sort of have to pinch yourself a little bit that it's actually finally happening? There were a couple of little false starts there along the way, but it's actually happening now. You know, Newcastle next year, you're on the grid. That That, that is pretty crazy to, to consider or to think that it is happening. I mean, there's only, I guess you could say, only 25 employees in this job position 
in Australia that that get an opportunity and, and I'll be one of them. So in that being said, as well as what you, what you just touched on, it's a weird feeling to think I'll be a rookie because I have had so much experience in, in supercars. I mean, I've had the opportunity to drive the FGX in Super 2. I've driven the 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 Commodore, the ZB Commodore, and most recently the, the Ford Mustang in enduro season and also as as a wild card when we did the, we did three rounds this year in 2021 and I also did one at the bend back in 2019 so I have quite a lot of experience and not only in supercars in a lot of other categories around the world as well more predominantly in open wheelers however there's quite a lot of mileage there so I think the mindset probably won't be so much as a rookie going into next year and I think having done these wild cards that we did this year, it's allowed me to, I guess, make mistakes that I would that a rookie would make, and in a period where there's not so much pressure because the championship points don't matter when you're only doing three rounds out of twelve. So the plan will be to go into next year knowing that I can build on those mistakes that I've learned, and also the racecraft, and I guess how much you can land on other cars how aggressive you've got to drive in the main series because it really is quite a big step up from Super 2. So there's a lot of things that I think having done these wildcards have put me in a really good position to, I guess, maximize everything once I get to Newcastle because the last thing I want to really want to do is get to Newcastle and, and leave there and go, oh, well, I kind of wish I, I knew what I knew uh, before or afterwards going into the event. So that's where these wild cards have been extremely beneficial. How's the health going, mate? Like obviously you've um, you've been through the ringer in the last couple of years with the, with the battle with testicular cancer. Is that sort of something that you can take your focus off a little bit now and just worry about, you know, being fit and driving racing cars? Absolutely. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago that you and I had a big chat about mm-hmm. this actually up in Darwin. And a, a week ago, it, it actually came up a year since my uh, since my surgery and it'll actually be today that it's been a year since I started chemotherapy. So it's, uh, yeah, been an interesting journey off track, one that I certainly didn't see coming. However, I'm in a position now where that is sort of out of my head and I can just focus on just trying to be fit and healthy. I don't have to focus on that side of the health. I mean, there's still the the odd checkup now and then, but having done that treatment has allowed me to get back to my life, how I guess how it was before, albeit a, a, a couple of small changes, but I do feel fitter than I ever have felt, which is, which is fantastic. And I mean, there's a lot of doctors, nurses, uh, my oncologist, uh, my surgeon, you know, those people that I have to thank for, allowing me to still pursue my dream and yeah it certainly was a hindrance but at that point in time I thought it could have all been over and to be I guess sitting here chatting with you now talking about what the future holds and it being a very uh, amazing future for myself (laughs) an opportunity that yeah not many people get the opportunity to have Um, yeah it's it feels pretty special. Well, Tommy, you know I'm a big fan and I'm, A, very happy that you're fit and healthy now and, B, looking forward to seeing you on the grid full-time next season. So uh, thanks for joining me on the pod. No worries. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. 
Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.